Welcome to episode 99 of the Kyberian Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. The church is a marvelous display of the glory of God, the theater of God's story. She received a faith passed down by our fathers, and she communicates that faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, at, at a propositional level, that's wonderful to contemplate and to participate in. But there is another question that we ought to consider in light of that truth. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, Jesus told us that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He commissions us to disciple the nations, baptize them into the triune name, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. At the very least, we can imply that there's a didactic implication here. How do we therefore teach? Is there a way to pursue teaching that is both effective, biblical, and clear? I'm joined on this 99th episode by my partner in crime, Dustin Messer, to talk about some of these issues. Dustin, how are you, my brother? I'm doing well. I just took a, a walk around downtown Dallas, and it's unseasonably cool here, and the city was in a great mood. Everyone just seemed very happy, so it's been a good morning so far. How are you? Oh, fabulous. Uh, thanks for asking. It's good to reconnect. I think our our last episode was still in the year of our Lord, 2021. So it's been quite some time. Uh, it's, it's good to be back. Uh, we talk about teaching quite a bit uh, because both of us are, are teachers by nature. It's, it's invested in our calling. But when we, we speak about teaching, there's a lot going on in um, our academic worlds. I wanted to ask you before we begin to delve into the topic, I have seen a few things. I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, some of the upcoming teaching endeavors that you have, because I think our listeners, those that have been sort of following uh, both of our journeys, specifically yours, would be interested in knowing. Yeah, uh, well, I am having an opportunity to teach the uh, Church and Society course at King's College uh, this, this summer, which is a, a great opportunity and a really wonderful school, and then still about a year away. But I'll do uh, likewise uh, a, a course on cultural apologetics at Reform Seminary here in Dallas, which, as you know, uh, has been uh, an interest of mine for for a long time. Thinking about how um, the faith is heard and received in a secular society, and specifically, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you and I both did a lot of reading early on of, of Van Til. Uh, for Van Til, a lot of the apologetic proofs and so forth that, that we often think of presuppositionalism as being hostile to, Van Til very much has a place for him, and it's specifically in the mind of believers, almost as discipleship. In other words, look at how the world is structured and so forth. Once you're a believer, these are great, uh, almost discipleship type uh, uh, principles that, that we should learn. I've been thinking a lot about cultural apologetics being not only for the non-believer, that is, how does the non-believer hear the gospel in intelligible terms, but in terms of discipleship, how are we thinking about the ways in which secularism teaches, catechize, catechizes something we're going to talk about here in a moment, our believers, and then how can the church be a counter uh, catechetical community that's intentionally targeting those areas of ugliness, lies, uh, uh, unethical behavior, and so forth. How are we reaching them with the true, the good, and the beautiful in those ways uh, that they're uh, being counter-catechized by the world? So I'm very excited about, about both of those 
opportunities, but it's hard to believe we're in 99 uh, episodes here at Kyperion Commentary. How many do you think you and I have done together of those 99? Probably half of them. Um, maybe yeah. maybe a quarter, I'm sure, for certain. But I, I think uh, you're just a very easy partner to chat with. And we have so many uh, eclectic interests that it makes these conversations much more pleasant. We could, you know, it's funny, you came to, to visit us here in Dallas not that long ago, and you and I stayed up, and literally you could have recorded, not for whatever value these conversations are, we could talk like this for, for hours and hours and did so, uh, and so I'm excited to, to talk with you about catechesis. Likewise, that was, a, that was a wonderful time. Hope we get a chance to reconnect again, my brother. So you wrote a piece on your Facebook um, page recently that posits this supposed dichotomy between Bible teaching and catechetical instruction. Uh, before we proceed, give us a little gist of, of the argument that you were uh, making in that post. You know, th this will mean something to some people and nothing to other people, but there's uh, a ministry in England called the Proclamation Trust. And uh, the Proc Trust world was very influential on me when I uh, was, was setting for ministry, I would say the emphasis of Proc Trust World is you take a verse uh, or a passage, Proc Trust, I would say, tends to in their preaching, and, and just maybe as even further background, Proc Trust is kind of a preaching course that uh, ordinands in the Church of England mostly uh, can go through. Very evangelical. It was started by people like Dick Lucas, David Jackman, uh, Vaughn Roberts, I think is very involved in it now. Evangelical leaders in, in the Anglican communion. Uh, and it trains people to take discrete passages, expound on them. And I would say what Proc Trust was birthed out of were the, the evangelical seminaries in England, specifically uh, Ridley at Cambridge, Wycliffe at, at Oxford, um, were producing preachers who uh, I would say were in their homilies reading into the text uh, a lot of things and, and were kind of just giving vague principles. At least that was the, the view. And so Proc Trust had this emphasis, which was, no, just look at the, the passage in front of you and, and explain it and go no further, lest you, um, rather than, uh, than exposit, explain the, the text in front of you, sort of read into it your own hobby horses, agendas. And that emphasis was, was very helpful for me. Then, just, and this will, will give me in a moment to catechesis, but I was introduced to a world after that, uh, a world uh, which you have helped make, Yuri, in a lot of ways, which was sort of a typological reading of scripture. That is, rather than just looking at, at a discrete passage, you want to uh, read along um, the whole sweep of scripture and see how that passage not only has a historical and grammatical context, but it has a redemptive historical context such that previous events uh, give light to that passage you're reading. And then events that happen later, likewise, uh, help us in interpret in a typological sense. So it's, it's sort of a, uh, a reading with the grain of, of scripture to give more broad context. And so that was very influential uh, to me as well. But in addition to this sort of diachronic reading of scripture, which is from front to back, beginning to end, um, it's 
become impressed upon me lately a syncretic reading of scripture, which synchronize, which which uh, answers specific questions. This gets us to, to catechesis. In other words, um, there are occasions where you take a passage and you preach that passage discreetly. Say you're preaching something on James. If you're preaching this passage in James, you're really going to emphasize the import and the importance of works. That a dead faith doesn't save us. A living faith saves us. What's a living faith? A living faith is, is that faith accompanied by works. Well, then if you're preaching something from Galatians, Paul is going to have by no means a corrective to James, but Paul is going to balance this teaching of faith and work in books like Galatians and Ephesians. When you do a syncretic reading of scripture, you're allowing the whole of scripture to speak into various dogmas, which you will be expounding. And uh, what I began to notice was that you have two polarities, it feels like, in evangelicalism. You have some folks who really will never preach to uh, the poles of scripture. That is, they'll never just teach James and they'll never just teach Galatians. They'll always sort of say, you know, this passage may make you feel uncomfortable, but here I'm going to curtail the ethical implication of this passage are kind of constantly doing systematic theology, constantly um, synchronizing uh, uh, scripture. I don't think that's helpful because I do think that each biblical author has a distinct accent, distinct voice, a distinct emphasis, and uh, we should we should give uh, uh, each passage its day in court, as it were. However, there is another polarity. Uh, this is maybe the, the trust friends who, who very much influenced me, which will, they're very reticent to do systematic theology. They're very reticent to uh, bring in, you know, the, the various passages on scripture and how they relate to one another. So as I wrote, it just strikes me that we have to have both of these things, a place for Bible study and Bible teaching and be very conscious that what we're doing now is Bible teaching, but then opportunities in the church calendar and the, the, the uh, discipleship life of, in the week of a church have opportunities for catechesis, which is taking very specific questions and then answering them, not with just James or just Paul or just Isaiah or just Micah, but with what we believe the whole sweep of scripture um, teaches. And so that's what I've been very concerned about lately is that in the healthy diet of the church, a church will do both Bible teaching, which allows scripture to be weird, right? <laughs> and odd and doesn't sort of make it all say the exact same thing in the exact same way, but then also catechesis, lest we become weird because it is a temptation of folks who are saying, well, I'm just going to teach verse by verse. I mean, the history of heresies in the church have been people saying, well, it's just me and my Bible, and I'm not, I'm just going to read into this passage some crazy theology. So allow the Bible to be weird, that's Bible teaching, but then keep us from being weird, that's catechesis. Holding both of those in balance is easier said than done, but I do think it should be the goal of every church and every pastor. Dustin, do you see a, a, a more appropriate place for one and the other? Do you see one of them doing better in the pulpit, the other one doing better in the podium. How do you sort of um, invest and apply those uh, those two uh, sides of the same coin, technically? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. 
I still love listening to the more prop trust uh, side preaching. I do think that there's something specifically appropriate about the Sunday morning main preaching event. I do think it's more appropriate to have that style of preaching, which is you're taking a passage and you're explaining it. I think that for several different reasons. One of which is that really is an opportunity not only to say, thus saith the Lord, and speak with, I would say, um, the, the most authority a pastor will have is when he is explaining and expositing, exposing uh, a particular uh, biblical passage. But also, in addition to the thus saith the Lord moment, which you really want the Sunday morning liturgy to, to certainly have, also is teaching people how to read the Bible for themselves. Again, this diachronic way of beginning in Genesis, ending in Revelation, and then seeing how this, this story uh, unfolds. So I would say Sunday morning, it, you're more likely than not, at least you should be more exposed to Bible teaching. And then have other uh, times in the calendar, uh, Sunday school, uh, discipleship groups where you're doing catechesis. I have noticed uh, the churches, again, tend to be uh, one or the other, and that more Bible teaching churches, they just say, well, of course, you know, the ladies' Bible study is going to go through Hebrews, the men's Bible study is going to go through First Timothy or something like that. And there really is never an occasion for catechesis, for thinking about uh, the Bible in the syncretic way you know, justification, uh, uh, the Eucharist, whatever kind of question we're, we're asking. So I think during the church week, there's occasion for more occasion, I would say, for catechesis. And then on Sundays, more for Bible teaching. How does Providence uh, think about and balance these two callings of Bible teaching and catechesis? Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question really to ponder. When I raise it to you, I have, you know, given some thought to it and mainly in the basis of experience not so much on the basis of sort of a, you know, general didactic paradigms. I was thinking this morning about my time with uh, James Jordan here in Pensacola many, many years ago. And we navigated certain things, but he said certain things that I think would have been very controversial. I mean, he's still alive. He's not too far from you. Mm -hmm. But he said certain things that I thought were at the time controversial, but now I see the wisdom of it. And this goes into a uh, podcast I learned, I heard recently from the guys at Mere Orthodoxy, some of them we know quite well, like Alistair. They were having a conversation about when to preach the rape passages. Uh -huh. And I thought that's a really interesting sort of conversation. Well, Jim also had this um, thought that there are, that the Sunday pulpit should be more for the explanation or even the popularizing of bigger gospel themes. Mm. Now, as you know, he didn't have any, there was no discomfort in him in preaching on, uh, you know, Leviticus 2 on a Sunday morning. But also he thought that there were certain topics that were better dealt with at a more, a, a more an environment where it was more didactically acceptable, where you can go in depth and where the possibilities of misunderstandings were minimized. Mm. Right. A, a sermon, uh, you know, in our case, we probably preach in the 20 minute mark or somewhere there, a 20 minute sermon on the rape of Tamar or something of that nature can be um, unhelpful at times. Now, the answer that many evangelicals will give is, well, 
preach a 55 or 60 minute sermon on it and develop as long as you can. But I, I've always been somewhat skeptical of the turning of congregants into an army of note takers. Mm-hmm. have been somewhat skeptical because I think that the worship experience, which we in our tradition call covenant renewal, um, should be different than the teaching or the didactic experience. Now, when you preach, you are teaching, but you want to keep some of these categories more concrete in one end there. So I, I've always thought about the pulpit as the place where you use your homiletic to do your hermeneutic. Yeah. In other words, so that people, when they hear the Bible exposited in 20 minutes or so, however you deal with lectionary passages or sermon series, whatever, that the people leave not so much saying, boy, I have a really good exegetical handle on verses two to six, but that they leave saying, I have a really good hermeneutical principle in verses two to six that I can see applying for this passage and perhaps for other ones, but something that opens up the the terrain of the text in a way that was not open prior to that. And then the exceptional cases, you know, I don't know, the 613 case laws or the rape text, using certain times like in the Sunday school lesson where that conversation can be open and questions can be asked. And also an environment where uh, if you think about, I don't know how your Sunday morning functions, Dustin, but in our church, all our children are present. And so there's also that uh, um, element also added to the conversation there. But I try to make a distinction. It doesn't mean I don't talk about rape on the pulpit. But when I do talk about it, I talk about it in a different way than I would if I had 50 minutes to deal with a classroom setting. Well, you know, uh, my maybe the fifth sermon I ever preached very early on, maybe the second sermon I ever preached, I can't remember, I guess it must have been assigned to me, but I preached on Amnon raping Tamar. And I remember thinking at the time, this is a bad idea, (laughs) you know, not just because of the context, but also because, you know, what do I know? I was so young and so forth. Uh, Also, and that is wise, uh, Jordan's admonition there. And one of the reasons it's wise is when the reformers talked about the perspicuity of scripture, that is, you can see uh, it's plain, it's clear. Anyone can pick it up and read it and get the plain meaning. What they did not mean is that every verse was equally perspicuous or certainly every doctrine was, was equally pers- perspicuous. Obviously, it was not the case. So even in the Protestant church, you have disagreements on, on various dogmas and so forth. What was meant was that the main point is perspicuous, is clear. Um, and I do think in the Sunday morning sermon, uh, knowing that you'll have non-believers there and so forth, that you want people to leave with a sense of that perspicuity. In other words, that what that preacher saw in the text, I see in the text, it's God's word and I'm going to live by it. What you don't want to do, it seems to me, is take a passage, which maybe you really, you know, in, in good conscience, you're not a hundred percent sure which way it goes. It could go either way. So then you get up and you say, you know, about half the commentaries say this, the other half says this. I can, I can sort of see it going both ways. Let's pray that you have not said, thus saith the Lord. And so I think that's a really important point is that you want to organize Sunday morning that people are meeting the living Lord, not just that you're, you're kind of taking a, an interesting passage and, and making some some notes about it. And even after the sermon, 
uh, I think you want people saying to themselves, you know, what a great God, not what an interesting expositor. Yeah, that's that's a terrific point. You know, what? On, uh, on, on Twitter, I wrote recently, um, I wrote, and I'll get your reaction to this here. Pastors who preach taking their congregations through a tour of various biblical texts, inviting them to turn here and there and everywhere in 50-minute sermons, create an army of note-takers rather than an army of hearers. And I think that's, and I, I say something else, I said, we have transformed much of modern preaching, Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, et cetera, into academic exercise and left our people without adequate hermeneutics to deal with the text. In some, we have turned our homiletics into Sunday school lectures. But mm. Part of the, I, I think I see the, the interest here and the motivation. And part of that is when you are in environments where, where there's very little Bible teaching, I hear this from pastors in rural towns, right? Where the opportunities for classical education, these opportunities are just, they're, they're very rare. There's a sense in which they feel like they have to make up for all the rarity of teaching in their community on a Sunday morning sermon. Mm -hmm. And um, that can be, I, I guess, acceptable in certain environments. Um, but the United States in particular has this wealth of resources that it's hard to, you know, by the time I preach on Sunday morning, some of my parishioners have listened to seven to 10 podcast episodes of that very week. And what I want to do is, um, is reinforce their faith, re-instruct their faith, re-energize their faith. And part of that process entails uh, an extra dose of uh, enthusiastic preaching to urge them to go forward into the world and say, I have confidence yeah. in the text of scriptures, and I'm going to take this forth wherever I go. Uh, anyway, what, your reactions to that? Yeah, I, mean, I retweeted it, as a matter of fact. So that was, <laughs> that was my first reaction was, was a, an RT. Uh, no, I think that's exactly right, uh, that there are occasions where uh, didactic learning, note-taking is appropriate. The sermon is just something, it's something different. It's uh, a sermon is, I heard Alistair Begg say, and I tweeted it. I'm going to read you my tweet, Yuri, and then you please tell do, me. Please do. And I don't think you retweeted this, so maybe you could go back and write <laughs> it. No, but Alistair Begg said um, something to the effect that no one really knows how to preach you just listen to other great preachers and then do your best. When you listen to great preachers, I think you are left with, uh, there's just something almost forgettable about the actual preacher. And you're left thinking about, you know, I mean, principally, ultimately God, but, but maybe the, the Bible passage. Great preachers have a way of stepping outside of themselves. And if the person is just taking notes and remembering the alliteration and so forth, I don't think that's, I don't think that's great preaching. Catechesis on the other hand um, is, is like that. And that people don't leave thinking about the catechizer, but what catechesis can do, Gustin has a great uh, volume on instructing new believers in the faith. Catechesis is a way to introduce you to the whole of the church. Here's how the church his thought about this or that. When you balance catechesis with Bible teaching, it really does allow the Bible to still criticize your catechism, whatever catechism that is. And maybe it's a very bare bones catechism that gives you just the basics. But nevertheless, 
you're showing in your Bible teaching. So I'm going to say things that really will stretch my catechism to the, to the nth degree because the Bible is centered here. This is God's word. This is your old professor or someone, obviously we all look up to a lot, John Frame. I think I got this illustration from him. The Bible is, uh, and, and any illustration can fail in any number of ways, but just to stretch your imagination a little bit, the Bible is the actual geography of the land. Our catechism and our catechesis is a map to the land when you're out exploring a piece of land and your map says there's a lake there, there isn't a lake in actual fact. You don't dig up a lake so that the land matches the map. You change your map. And the way you're preaching, I think, uh, in terms of making your sermon centered on a text, um, maybe even a long text, it could be a whole book of the Bible perhaps, but uh, based on a passage, I think shows people that's the land. This is what's authoritative and normative. The catechesis is just trying to accurately reflect, like a map reflects the land. So I think that uh, even the way in which you teach scripture and then you catechize, I think, can, uh, can, can speak to the, the uh, sola scriptura, the way scripture really does rule and have authority in a way that our catechesis uh, does not. Mm. That, that's really good. That's really good. I, I've been wondering as we talk about this here, if this is in, within our lifetimes, we've seen, uh, this goes back, of course, all the way to, uh, to Voss and others, but I wonder what we've seen over the last uh, 10, 15 years has been this sort of warfare between systematic theology and biblical theology. I'm assuming this is somewhat like that, where biblical yeah. theology would, would fit the general category of biblical teaching the unfolding of the drama of history, biblical history. And systematic would be the, the catechetical, right? The, I don't know, your 39 articles, the Heidelberg, Westminster, the, the Nicene Creed itself, these sort of propositional statements. And it, in my heart, Dustin, uh, because of the influence, because the people that have influenced me shifts towards one direction, yeah. which is biblical theology. But both of us know that in the labor of pastoral ministry, we need to come back to these basic dogmas so that our people, when they are lost biblically, so to speak, they find themselves back at the Nicene orthodoxy that they have held close to, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's dialectic such that, you know, your, in other words, someone is, is given a broad roadmap, say, okay, Here's what's going on when you come to church on Sunday and so forth. Here's what's going on in, in scripture. But then as you actually get into the trees, the trees, you know, you, you revise what you thought about the forest. It's, it's constantly dialectic. But I also think of catechesis. I do think, as you say, you know, diachronic versus synchronic. That's a, another way of saying, I think, biblical theology versus systematic theology. That's part of it. The order of one's life, I think, is also reflected in that catechesis is an induction process whereby it isn't even just saying, yeah, I mean, it is saying, here's what scripture says, but it's also just saying, here's how we order our life together. Here's how you can be brought from the world into the church. And the reason catechesis was so important in the early church is because of the vast difference between the world and the church coming out of paganism. In a Christendom context, catechesis, uh, frankly, wasn't as important. I mean, that sounds 
harsh to say, but it's the truth that people are kind of culturally Christians. They had the Ten Commandments, you know, they, they, they knew kind of a basic Judeo-Christian uh, ethic. Then, um, you know, your catechesis can be pretty brief, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, people can be brought in. In secularism, it seems to me, tons of differences between secularism and paganism, but one similarity is the induction process from bringing one into the world, into the church, is going to take more than just them walking the aisle and saying, I believe in Jesus. Whereas in a secular context, you could imagine, you know, uh, that was never sufficient, just walking an aisle, but you could imagine where someone really does grasp the gospel and, and broadly the Christian ethic just through hearing, you know, a sermon and being convicted of their sins. I think we're in a moment now where that, how do we bring people in? What are the basics of, yes, Christian theology that speaks to systematic theology, but also Christian piety, um, also uh, uh, Christian spiritual experience, you know, what sort of, what are the rhythms of prayer and that kind of thing? It's just so, so important. And then after one is inducted into the church, culminating um, uh, culminating in, in baptism and then being a communicate member and, and receiving the Lord's Supper, um, then obviously they're going to go to scripture and they're going to revise and say, you know, I think this was maybe legalistic how uh, my, my catechesis process told, told, taught me how to keep the Sabbath or, or whatever it is. I mean, they may, they may revise that on scripture and we should, be, we should be open to that. But I do think just practically, most of us, this is a good example. I started listening to a podcast the other day and it was like a story podcast. Like they were telling this story and I stopped it and I had to ask the friend who recommended it to me. So just tell me basically what's this about? Like, is this a murder mystery? Is it like a romantic comedy? Like give me just the broad thing. You know, just give me spoilers. Just like generally what's going on here. And then I can engage it. That's kind of what catechesis is. Here's the broad picture of the Bible, what it means to be a Christian. Um, and then it kind of gives people the basic tools to go into scripture and encounter, uh, encounter the faith for themselves. We, we begin this conversation talking about um, Van Til, and uh, we both have a, a lot of fondness for Van Til in all his Dutch awkwardness. But part of, the, part of that, the one thing that people don't realize about this insane, insanely brilliant sort of Dutch philosopher was that in the early days of um, Westminster Seminary, you know, he and Jack Miller were quite a, an evangelistic duel in the downtown Philly area. I remember when I visited Westminster, you know, 15 years ago, no, maybe 20 years ago, I was considering Westminster Seminary. I remember going to certain downtown areas of Philly and they say, this is where Van Til and Jack Miller did evangelism. Hmm. You're, you're bringing these two sort of models together. I think in, in the humanity of each individual, right? And when the pastor does that, he needs to also be self-aware that the way he presents these things, whether from a you know, Bible teaching or catechetical perspective, in whatever environment, that he needs to, at the very least, he doesn't need any, any sort of near perfection. But what he does need is a general disposition towards the good, towards the the long obedience. And yeah. it seems to me that when that is clearly displayed, 
the teaching becomes more effective and the people are much more prone to accepting and digesting what he's saying. Yeah, that is, that's very well, very well said. Um, and I think having an emphasis on, on catechesis, or at least some may not emphasis is even the right word, but just some sort of intentional catechesis does allow us, I think, to be more as Van Til, as you say, I mean, people don't know that about Van Til, I forget who, uh, who just said something about Schaefer being more evangelistic than Van Til. And that may be true in terms of just hours in the day, Schaefer is kind of constantly out there, but I pointed to this famous photo of Cornelius Van Til street preaching. I think once you have a catechesis that allows you to truly be more evangelistic, knowing that this evangel, I mean, we, again, we started, you read Jesus's words, teach them to obey all that I've commanded. So I'm just baptizing them. So I'm just getting them in. That's okay. Now they're in, what do we do with them? You know? Okay. Now we're going to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded us to do. And I think however one balances, I don't think there's one exact right model of balancing Bible teaching and catechesis. However one does it though, you really do have to be thoughtful that you allow both things to have their, to have their moment, both the broad uh, in catechesis and the specific in, in Bible teaching. Just to close, Dustin, I know you have an Anglican background there. What is, what's, why, why is J.I. Packer such an instrumental role in um, harmonizing these ideas? Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. Uh, Packer, uh, along with a, a co-author, has a wonderful book called Grounded in the Gospel, Making Believers the Old-Fashioned Way. In it, he criticizes the modern Sunday school movement on precisely this front, that it just taught kind of books of the Bible and so forth, and that Sunday school teaching was replacing an old catechetical model of, okay, how are we inducting uh, new believers in the faith? Packer gave probably the last, I would say he, he lived so long, it's probably the last quarter of his life, maybe the last half of his life or so, to really intentionally trying to revive the catechumenate. Um, he wrote for the Anglican Church in North America, co-wrote along with Joel Garver, had a, an interview with, or excuse me, uh, not Joel Garver, Joel Garver was my uh, doctoral <laughs> supervisor, uh, along with, um, his name will, will hit me here in a second, but he co-wrote, what's that? Gary Parrott. That's who he co-wrote Grounded in the Gospel with, but he co-edited the Anglican Catechism, I'll, I'll think here in a moment. I know him, okay. I, I know him and have an interview out there with him on the, the Agnes Catechism to be a Christian. Uh, but, uh, but he spent a lot of time thinking about this catechetical process and to be a Christian is a wonderful uh, a wonderful uh, catechism uh, one might avail them avail themselves of. But Packer, I say, was a, a good balance because not only did he so emphasize the revival of uh, the catechumenate, but he also, of course, was a wonderful Bible teacher. And you, it's hard to read, you know, keeping in step with the spirit, of course, knowing God. Yes, he's doing catechesis in those books, but he's also looking at discrete passages and explaining them. And so I think in Packer, you have a really good example of someone passionate, both about Bible teaching and about uh, catechesis. Wonderful. Dustin, uh, what an absolute pleasure to um, be with you again for this 99th episode. And Dustin is the uh, pastor of for Faith Formation at All Saints 
in Dallas, Texas. My friend, thank you for this conversation and thanks for your fruitful labors online. And I, I stay very up to date on whatever is coming out of the keyboard of Dr. Mester. Thanks again, my brother. Thank you, Yuri. It was always a joy.